leaders have to be the custodians of those values and they they have to point them out when they're being used and when they're not being used and they have to have actions that actually show consequences when you do and when you don't use those values as well. Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, we speak to Merrin Faber. Merrin is a strategic communication advisor, change manager, and project manager with a background in managing communication in organizations undergoing complex reform and organizational transformation. She's worked in the comms industry for more than 18 years and is currently putting her skills and expertise to good use at the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing in the great Australian state of Victoria, where she heads up their corporate communications team. Merrin has plenty of experience in transitioning employees through change and can deliver creative ideas and considered advice to senior leadership on the best way to get people to back the change. She also has great understanding of what's required to deliver best practice organisational change. As well as working in the Victorian government, Merrin has also held roles with the CSIRO, the National Disability Insurance Agency, and the Walter and Eliza Hall Medical Research Foundation. And in between all of that, she is the president of the great organisation, the International Association of Business Communicators, or the IABC, in Victoria. But she joins me today from Melbourne, Australia. Merrin, thanks very much for joining me on GovComs. Thank you for having me, David. Really love to it's, be here. Um, it's it's a it's a time of great change and interestingly enough over the weekend i i had the opportunity to read once again the work that zora artis has done and wayne asplund around the importance of alignment and i'm not sure if you've had the opportunity to read that paper that's been put together but it really got me thinking about the basics of getting things right and and getting started. And the reason I'm thinking about that is because I'm working on a project at the moment where I'm struggling to get the basics right. I'm struggling to get people to see that those those core basics of of having one story, you know, one voice, um, one tone. Uh, it, it I'm I'm really struggling to try to get them to land that at a time of, of of great change and everything else. How are you finding it at the moment in trying to get people aligned in the work that you're doing there um, at the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing in Victoria? Well, I I love um, Zora and Wayne's work around alignment and. Um, and so uh, just to be clear with you, so I've, just, I've just come back from maternity leave and I'm just, um, and it's a new department and I'm um, walking back in to the role looking at corporate communication. So it's probably starting where you are right at that very beginning stage. Um, 
But for me, with alignment, I think it it is really important to get that one vision and um, everyone sort of having the same vision going forward. But I also think that the way that 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 vision is told um, by the leaders and to get that alignment really needs to be um, uh, aligned to how the different parts of the organisation speak to each other and um, and and, uh, and 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 what their culture is like. So, when I used to work at the CSIRO, you have a range of different scientists working across the the nation. They cover a whole heap of different disciplines, and they talk to each other differently. So when we did have changes happen, um, the leaders would actually align their staff in different ways in the way that was comfortable for them. So as an example, um, the area of the the organisation that's really into um, uh, IT and um, software sort of development, they speak differently to your biological scientists. So their leaders would use... um, you know, online tools to hold their seminars, to talk to their staff, to discuss issues and have the open forum in that way than what you would have for um, the other areas of the organisation who would might gather in groups and either talk in big groups or small groups and, and have the message travel differently. So I think along with that alignment and keeping everyone on the same sort of him sheet, you also need to incorporate the differences within the different parts of the organisation and how they manage and deal with each other. But even looking at the, the Department of um, Families, Fairness and Housing, the, the groups of staff that are there, you've got your child protection staff, you've got your housing staff, you've also got your corporate staff um, and, and now you've got um, areas from sort of multicultural affairs and veterans and all those sorts of areas sort of coming in. They're all going to be different they're all going to communicate different they all have the different ways and I think we letting leaders know that even though we have to be aligned you need alignment with within your own individual way of getting your people together Mm. but do you feel that there is an a necessity to have one story though like it may it it may be translated in different ways communicated through different channels at different times etc but how do you then sort of create that central meaning where people, however they get that information, whichever way they understand it, at least they understand it in, in, in a way that is, that is unified? I, I think you need to, well, you need to contextualise it for the stuff that you're dealing with. But, yes, you, you do need an overarching view of where your, your organisation is going um, and that's where your, you know, your most senior leadership present that view. And then um, the leaders dealing with your staff directly need to provide that contextualisation to how that bigger view then, um, what that actually means to them is bringing that back down to what does it mean for me um, sort of discussion as well. Mm. So interestingly, you've, you've referenced leadership there on a number of occasions. How do you best get leaders to understand the importance of communication as a way of achieving uh, organisational objectives? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a good question. And uh, with the way that um, with me, leaders have to trust what you're doing. And so you have to try and get them across the line. And, and leaders, are, and like with staff leaders, are all in different positions 
of where they feel communication sit. So you'll have some leaders who may have had change training, who may have understand how communication um, and change management sort of works and how to transition people through a change and um, and, and that's at one end of the spectrum. So I've worked with teams where the leaders sit there and then I've also worked with teams where the leaders sort of sit on the other side where they it, it's it's not well, all they really want you to do is do comms. So they want you to write something, they shoot it out and, and it goes. So I like with staff, you have to build a trust, a relationship with them and then it, and and work out what's the best way of getting them um, aligned with what you're doing. And for some leaders, that might be showing them case studies of how things work. Um, for some leaders, they all have their own objectives of what they want and how they want things done. And I think it's working out what that is and then um, whatever you're trying to achieve, align it with how they think, how they work, and then and pass the message through that way to them to get them on board. So I don't think it's any sort of different to when you're, you're, you're trying to get staff aligned. You're, you really have to work out what your leadership needs and then how you're going to help them get that through your um, communication methods. Mm. Do you find it difficult sometimes if you have a particular way and a particular style and particular frameworks that you use and that you know um, to be the most effective in order of getting results, but then there may be a disconnect with the way that a particular leadership uh, may like to be communicated with? So how do you then align what you know to be best practice with where they might be and how do you then take them on the journey to to perhaps bring them to to more to your way of thinking yeah i think you have to compromise and start with your small wins um you let me see if i can think of an example like uh i i remember dealing with a group of engineers um, and we were relocating staff from one area to another and it was a very disgruntled sort of group. And so I was trying to understand the sort of baseline where staff were at, what they were thinking, those types of things. So to do that, I spoke to their, some of their leaders and um, the, the guy came in and he sat down and the first thing he said to me is, change management, that must be the most boring thing in the entire world. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> tell me about your stuff. <laughs> and so, um, and so and we, fortunately he continued on the process with me, which was good. Um, and um, when I, I went to a, a meeting where I presented them with a table which essentially said these are all the issues that your staff have, this is what we can do about it. And this is, these are the steps for that to be done. And I remember them looking at it and going, yeah, okay. And, and one of the engineers went, we're engineers. We like tables. We like to know it. Like it's, this is good. It's simple and we know what to do. And then um, and some of the things they knew about on that table, some of the, the issues they didn't understand and or not didn't understand, they didn't know were happening. And then fortunately they just, you know, dealt with a few of those things with their staff and then started to see the results of it. So um, for me, what I learned in that sort of situation was, um, well, with scientists, get your data, get your information, get your examples, present it to them in the way that they like. Um, and as soon as you start getting some of those wins, then you start to build that trust relationship. Um, 
And some people it happens really quickly. I was in an enterprise bargaining um, meeting and the, the person that I was working with who was writing the EA, um, she said to me, oh, before I go in, are there any tips that you have for me? And I said, well, maybe just listen to how they're feeling about what's being presented um, and it'll give you a sense about, you know, how their conditions are, like how they're dealing with their conditions. And she looked at me and said, feelings, this is not about feelings. And I was like, okay. I was like, all right, no worries. And, and she walked in and had this conversation and she walked out and just went, all they talked about was how they felt. And I was like, yep. And she goes, oh, all right, I got it. And I was like, great, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I think it, it's, yeah, getting in those sort of quick wins um, helps and, you know, just keep going back and, and keep trying and, you know, and sometimes it may never work out but, you know, over time you can build good relationships. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, that emotional piece that it's, it's so fundamental to who we are as people and that that is the driver of the of the action but then trying to get people to understand that it's not as you say the facts the figures it is the emotion and the feeling that ultimately will drive the action and and clearly um, that was a great demonstration and a great um, example of that but then how how more broadly even when you are as you say you know you have experience with working with scientists who do like facts who do like tables ultimately they're people in the end so how do you how do you bring that together when you look at when you're communicating with that sort of technical audience, understanding that they may express a view one way, but ultimately they are people and they do have feelings? Yeah. So, so I found scientists really interesting because even though they're very rational and they also, yeah, are very, they do go with their values over. So, so I have seen them see information and then disregard it because it isn't in line with their values. And I, I, for me, values are the big thing. If you're communicating, if you're treating people in line with the values, their values and the values of the organisation, then that goes a long way in them being able to um, either accept the change, adapt with the change or tolerate a change better than what they would if you were doing something against what they they feel as their sense of self. It's interesting you mentioned again that issue of values because what I tend to find is that values are not often used particularly well uh, to to drive culture and to drive change and and to and to build performance and to hold people accountable. That often they are disregarded in some ways because, yes, the, the work may have been done to bring them together to say that these are the core of our foundations, but when it comes to bringing values into the day-to-day behaviour uh, of an organisation, they're often left to one side. How do you go about making sure that they are central and that they are used and that they they are part of the, you know, creating meaning for people inside organisations? And does, and does my uh, experience of values not often being used uh, reflect with your experience? Yes, it, it does. And, um, I, yeah, and I, and I think it, there's also there's two sets of values or probably more. There's the values that the organisation states 
and then there's the values of the individuals or the culture, the actual culture of the organisation. You want to make sure those two actually meet up or at least know what all of those things are because because if from an organisational point of view, if you're communicating and or you're doing things which aren't in line with the um, the organisation's values, people know and they notice and um, you'll get resistance there. But then also if you start doing things which scratch at people's internal sense of self and um, motivations then which won't be stated organisation values, then you start to get resistance there as well. Um, and I, I have found that, you know, there are times when organisations don't um, treat staff in line with the values that they have said to hold. Um, and that's where leadership comes back in as well because leaders have to be the custodians of those values and they, and they have to point them out when they're being used and when they're not being used and they have to have actions that actually show consequences when you do and when you don't use those values as well. Um, and you need to build that into your strategic, you know, like your, your strat comms plan or your strat change plan or your entire project plan. It's like this is where we make our decisions, like all your decision-making needs to be based on those values. And I think you need to be upfront about it as well, which is scary because if you're upfront about it and go, this is the change we're making and this is the framework that we're using to make decisions to implement this change, if you say your values are going to be part of that framework, then you have to keep to it because as soon as you don't, then that's when your staff start to, start to lose sort of faith in the change that's happening um, if you, you don't lead up to that. So you, I think the, the big challenge for people is stating this is how we're going to make decisions. These are the values that we're going to hold ourselves accountable to and then, then they actually have to do it and that's a scary bit. Because if you you don't do it, you lose your staff. But there are always those times when you come with you come up to complex decisions where you either go with your values or you don't, um, and that's when I think see things start to break down, or even people perceiving that you're not going with your the, the values that you're, you've outlined. Um, you start to get a breakdown in trust. How do you help leaders stay on track when they they perhaps? are being pushed around some of those pressures that, you know, a compromise might be easier, a compromise might be a faster way to a better solution, whereas you know that holding the values is going to get you a, a better outcome over the longer term. How do, you, how, how do you help leaders to understand the importance of values in their decision-making? This is where I find being an advisor is really hard because you have to state those things. You have to state where you, you see there is a difference between the communication and what you're saying and what's actually happening. Um, and, and for me, it's, it's pointing it out and explaining what the consequence may be. And the leader then has to make the decision. Um, and, and ultimately it's after them. And I think what I, for me with leaders, they're in this, really tough position is that they have to make the best choice for their people, for the organisation, with all the information they have at the time, and it might not be a nice decision and it might be a messy decision, but they have to do that. And I, and I think if they're honest and transparent with their staff around that, then people generally understand. Some people may not like it, but they understand. Um, some people might not like it, not understand and, and go another way, and that's fine. But I um, I think as um, 
for me and as advisor, I, I point it out, I tell them what I believe the consequences are going to be and then I leave them to make that decision. Um, and, you know, fortunately to this date they haven't, people haven't really made decisions which go to, like across my value set because then I would find that really difficult from a personal perspective working with people who I think are doing things which scratch on my own sense of self and values. But um, I think it's you advise them the best that you can. I mean, and they can seek counsel elsewhere and they have to make a difficult decision and then you provide them with the best way of being able to communicate that decision. Mm. And then from from your point of view, finding that that courage to be able to step up knowing you're going to have a difficult conversation, what's your advice to people when they're trying to prepare for a difficult conversation? To prepare for those conversations, I think it's it's worth having someone to, to talk through it with. And for me, it's always lining out what, what's the issue, where do I think um, the complex points are, what do I, what should I be advising? Um, and if I feel that I don't, I'm not clear on those things, then I try and have a confidential conversation to sort of sort to to nut that out. Um, and, and sometimes I've done that and people have sort of challenged me as whether it's an issue or not and those types of things. And I think you, you need to have a confidential conversation with people around that. I know with the IABC there is an ethics committee where you can actually bring those issues to them confidentially and seek their input on um, what sort of the issue is and, and potential solutions and those types of things. So I think it's sort of finding... Um, the place where you can actually nut out that issue in a confidential manner with people and then forming that view in your, your mind and, um, and, and how you're actually going to work through presenting that. Um, sometimes, depending on your level in an organisation, I know like with some, when I was um, at the earlier stage of my career, I, you know, talk, talking to senior leadership about those things is very daunting. So bringing in your your own support network in terms of your own management and line management to help have those conversations um, sort of helps as well. And, I, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a difficult thing, but I, I feel that I've had a bit of practice at it. Um, and um, in the past few years for me, I remember sitting across the table from a senior executive who had made, was holding a line of one decision and I was trying to tell her I think it needs to change and I sat there and said, as your communication advisor, this is what I think should happen and she sat there and went, I'm not doing it. And then I was like, that's all I can do. So... um, so for me, I was comfortable walking out of that room kind of going, I've done everything that I can do um, and and sort of just move on with that. There, and there wasn't any major, like, serious consequences of it. I was just saying this is the way I think it should happen from the experience that I have um, and, you know, and it goes the way it goes really. Mm. And I imagine that, you know, if it was something that, you know, violated your, your personal values, you know, you you would have then probably made other decisions. If it was something serious, you'd be thinking, well, you know, 
I'm going to move on because I I can't give this my best effort every day because I you know there's been you know a violation of of you know my standards my values. So listen, um, you are in as I said, Victoria, and you've been in in lockdown for a longer period for quite some time, or you were in in a lockdown period during COVID-19 for quite some time. Um, You've had the additional uh, task of taking on this new role. Um, Just perhaps I'd be interested in your reflections on how things are changing now that we you know, remote work is now going to be a reality. It's going to be embedded into the way things work, the, the way we, we do work. Uh, it's it's not going away. Uh, what's been your experience so far and, you know, what's surprised you uh, and what hasn't surprised you about being effective as a communications leader uh, during this period? Oh, I think the thing that hasn't surprised me is the resilience of communication staff, um, especially in um, like the Victorian government where comm staff were dealing with bushfires and then they rolled straight into COVID um, and then had a first wave and a second wave and they continued to work very long hours um, evolving their communication to the public as things sort of continued on. Um, and I think that that's a fantastic and a testament to all those communicators out there doing that work. Um, I think what is exciting is the fact that people have had to very quickly think about new ways of doing things. So looking at, I mean, looking at new ways of onboarding staff, especially like in Victoria, a lot of, you know, people aren't entirely back in the office yet. Um, and so there are teams who have never met and when, um, you know, the Victorian government needed to bring in more people into the organisation, you have to onboard them and get them up to date with everything that's happening um, and you have to do that virtually. And so it changes the way that you train people. It changes the way that they have to connect with their teams and communicate with their teams. Um, and people have had to do this really Quickly, and I think um, hopefully now, and I know in um, my department at the moment, it's really my the, the comms area. We're reflecting on um, what has happened over the past twelve months, what changes have been made, and what do we want to keep, and what don't we want to keep, um, and how are we going to move forward from that? So having the space now to be able to um, make decisions around, you know, what. Um, the new ways of working for us are going to be. Um, so I think um, that's that's exciting. And it, it's also um, from a sort of tight ecosystem point of view, looking at, okay, so how does Victoria, Melbourne now operate? You might not have as many people in the city, so people out in the suburbs doing their work. For an organisation, um, you can have a distributed workforce. I've worked in like national organisations which have distributed workforces, multiple sites, um, and even Victoria. That happens with all our government departments. But now your distributed workforce, you have extra locations which are people's homes. So, what are the communication methods that make sure that you keep all those people up to date that are different to a normal distributed workforce? 
So I think there's there's lots of opportunities for us to to improve effective communication, uh, which I think is exciting because it means you get to think different and test things and see if they work and see if they don't work and um, test the technology that you've got to see what might be best and what isn't. In in those conversations about you know what are you going to keep. What are you going? You know, what are you going to you know keep doing? What are you going to stop doing? What are you going to start doing? Perhaps just in terms of a of a keep doing, what are maybe the top one or two things that you'll keep doing, and maybe the top one or two things that you'll you'll stop doing, and maybe the top one of what you will start doing. I don't know if I can answer that right now because I'm not really across everything that has been done. If that makes sense, like I. Um, yeah, they're still ongoing. Yeah. So really, the com- those conversations, I suppose, are just they're they're just starting. Really, I suppose, as you start to work through, because I think this is the other thing, isn't it? Is that we're we're working in this evolving environment because it's not as if it's a rolling static. Oh, okay, we've now found ourselves to the next normal, so to speak. You know, where where it's all okay. Oh God, we can all slow down now, and it's all going to be like this forevermore. I. I, I get, you know, every day I roll into work, it's almost like, okay, where, where are we right now? Where is this spaceship at the moment? Uh, understanding that it could be in a very different place by the end of the afternoon because of what may continue to be moving, what's changing, what's popular, what's what's working, what happens, you know, like, you know, state borders can close in an instant here in Australia and then all of a sudden you're working in a different sorts of environment. So it's that agility, isn't it, to you know, keep yourself up on your toes, um, but maintaining agility at a time of, as you outlined before, in terms of the staff you're working with, you know, there were bushfires in, in, in Australia, massive. Uh, then you've COVID waves one and two. How how then are you working at that personal level to maintain the enthusiasm and, and agility of your team? Um, they can be resilient, but they're people ultimately. So, how do you keep them ready um, to keep moving? Because, uh, you know, I know, everyone knows that, you know, we have to keep moving because that's where the world's going. Yeah, you really need to look after their well-being and their psychological safety. And, um, I mean, the Victorian government has been aware of that for a long period of time and there's lots of um, things put in place and supports that people can access. Um and I think it's probably part of that continual upskilling of um, your management and leadership in your teams as well to to help kind of create. I think you need to create space for people to be able to um, to have those moments to look after themselves, um, which I think we have more now than before, um, just due to you know emergency situations not being so. Um, heavy um so yeah I I think when you you're looking at what you need to keep as teams and um some of those might are sitting around those big fundamentals around how do we maintain our well-being how do we keep connected with each other um and I think if you get those sort of foundations right then the day-to-day business decisions can can keep happening um, and keep evolving because you have a solid foundation 
It's interesting, though. I was having a conversation with a senior member of the Australian Public Service and, you know, the new normal, you know, and this is not just here in Canberra, it would be in every public service organisation around the world that that the pace that came um, as a result of bushfires, the pace that came as a result of COVID has, has lifted the tempo and, you know, the interconnected world in which we work, you know, the impacts of technology, the changing expectations of citizens, uh, all of those things are, you know, forcing um, that, that tempo uh, and again, uh, nice to hear that you are optimistic about that, but then how do you, or, you know, looking sort of to the next 12, 18 months as you start to build and mature this team, how, how are you thinking about keeping people um, ready for, for that increased tempo, that, that increased operational tempo that's now perhaps the reality um, looking to the future? So for me, I think that whenever you're making, like when you're in that rapid sort of situation and you know, there's a lot of changes and those types of things, I think it comes back to your value set as well of your organisation. Um, treating people, making your changes make it in line with the values of your organisation to help kind of maintain the well-being of your staff. And then it's finding those moments, I mean, to, of... When can we move fast and when can we move slow? So at the moment with a new department, you need to set up your corporate, like your internal communication function. So we need some sort of, you know, basis to start from. And if we can get that solid, then we can start to move faster when we get that. So it's sort of, okay, we'll quickly sort of put this basis together and then it will help us sort of if leave us to move faster and so when we need to. Um, and I think as a leader, you it's sort of, you need to look after your staff. You need to make decisions not with your values. You need to be able to guide them through um, those changes by letting them know when are we moving quickly, what do we require from you, and, and when can we take those breaks and move slower, um, what type of resourcing do we need, and advocating for that when required. You might get it, you might not, but you've, you've got to make those decisions and put those things forward. Um, and, I mean, that there is that reality that, you know, like the past year, things have to just keep going and keep accelerating. Um, but, you, you know, there's only so much people can do. So you, you need to look after your staff and and give them and, and, and show them how they can get that break when they can. And and making those hard decisions about what what do we do and what don't we do Basing those decisions around your your values and the framework that you've set for your decision making and keep and trying to keep with that as consistently as you can. Mm. And listen, just a, a final question before we go. Um, you are the president of the IABC in Victoria. Wonderful organisation. I've been a member for oh God more than twenty five years now. I think going back a, a, a long way. What are the benefits that you have had in your career from being a member of the IABC and why should everyone listening to this podcast become a member of the IABC? The biggest benefit I've had is the, the network of people within the IABC. 
there's such I think the thing is is in in some and for my for me the reason why I joined is because I was working in organizations when I was generally like the only internal communicator I had a certain perspective around things I needed to talk to people who were either in the same situation or could help guide me or had more experience in those types of things so being a member enabled me to connect with people who could um, uh, confirm the way that I do things, challenge the things that I do um, and or advance what I was doing. Um, it allowed me to access, you know, um, thought leadership in different areas so I could continue to develop and to continue to learn because um, my, my background is in biochemistry and then I learned to do comms on the job and then I got a master's degree to do that and I wanted to continually learn about how to best um, do communications. Um, and so it's, it's the people in the organisation connecting with those people who can challenge the way that you think um, it's, um, is one of the most important things and it also just provided with more information to help deepen the craft that I do. So that's why I'm a member. I love it. Excellent. So I would uh, encourage anybody um, who's not uh, and who hasn't engaged with the IABC that just, you know, Google IABC, it'll come up and um, go and have a look because, again, I, I wholeheartedly um, – uh, support everything Meryn's just said about the IABC and the benefits that it can give you as a communicator. Um, and it's a global network. This is the other thing is that, you know, you're, you're sharing experiences, not just with people who are in your own local market, but there is so much knowledge, so much wisdom and so much content that you can learn from. So um, check that out. Well, listen, Meryn, um, Thank you very much um, for giving up part of your day today. I see that, you know, like many, you have responsibilities, not just at work today, but you have other responsibilities uh, going on in the background there. So uh, best of luck with that. Best of luck with your new job at the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing in Victoria. And thanks very much for joining us on GovComs today. Thank you. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. What a wise lady uh, there, um, Meryn Faber, who's the president of the IABC, but also the head of comms at the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing in Victoria. You know, lots of, uh, as I say, wisdom there, I think, working through some of those problems. And I think I got a little bit off my chest there at the beginning <laughs> of the discussion because today I'm just having one of those days. But anyway, that was good. So thanks uh, to Merritt for coming on today. And thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again. This is about learning. This is a learning podcast. And I'm sure I've got a whole lot of things that I've written down here that I'm going to now take away and put into my uh, work as I move on to the next thing. So thanks to Merritt today. And again, as I say, thanks to you for coming back. We'll be back at the same time in a couple of weeks with the next episode of GovComs. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.